I never intended to go to security, but it was always something that needed to be handled. And at some point, I realized it was always those kinds of problems that I couldn't stop thinking about. Part of what makes careers in security so interesting, every, every professional skill you have, you will use. Like security is both science and art, right? We have to find these very objective results and metrics, and at the same time, it becomes a judgment call. There's something beyond just the compliance piece of it. Because if you look at all these companies that did get breached, they were compliant. How do you tell the difference between a good security person and a bad security person? You can't. They both say no. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Today we have an awesome guest with us. We have Julie Tsai. Uh, thanks for coming to the show, Julie. Oh, it's a pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, about uh, sure. what you do and I guess kind of how you got into security? So today I am a leader and a director in security organizations. So right now working for a major cloud content management company. I started out my career more than 20 years ago now debugging uh, network controller hardware. And I spent about 13 years in system administration and infrastructure space on the actual delivery side of it, tech ops, and in that process gained security knowledge because it was often part of our uh, second jobs mm-hmm. you know, that weren't named. Yeah, that was never named, but right. uh, had to be done anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. It was not named, but if there was a problem, they would be calling us. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I gradually made my way into doing a couple of years of development, um, found out that I was a better sysadmin, and then went back into doing more DevOps and DevSecOps types of things, and eventually moved into management. What drew you in? What about the security aspects of that sort of sysadmin attracted your attention? You know, it's an interesting thing for me, at least. I never intended in the beginning to go to security, (laughs) but it was always something that needed to be handled. And at some point, I realized it was always those kinds of problems that I couldn't stop thinking about, either because of the acuteness of it or because of the complexity. And then eventually, as I started to get in deeper, I would find myself more frequently having conversations with my managers and executives about, we really need to do this. Um, I really, really need us to not forget about it. And yeah. you know, this is how we need to do it. And it was starting to happen at company after company. And so finally, when I was interviewing about five years ago over at Walmart, um, I met a really great VP of platform over there. And originally, they were interviewing me for a DevOps role. And I was like, I don't know. These things get defined in so many ways. And he looked at my resume and said, you seem really passionate about security because you know, you're always doing security problems. And I was like, yeah, I think it's important. Yep. He said, you know, why don't you consider working for the security department? And so I said, sure, we'll give it a go. And it actually ended up being a great career advice. Yeah. Oh, awesome. I think the there are today for the people, you know, the biased selection of the people that come on this show. Uh, there's oftentimes either sort of a dev or an ops, you know, or you yes. know, sysadmin yeah. and, and ops today really are, are just different terms for for similar types of activities that evolve them into security and that passion that sort of draws you in puts you in a stronger starting point for it. Uh, oh, absolutely. You can have kind of a love-hate relationship with it. You may find yourself, you know, cursing out the security people you work with, but then wondering why you're always going to go talk to them or work with them or yeah. you know, yeah. figure out those problems and someday you will be there too. 
So you're, it sounds like you made that transition in Walmart, uh, yeah. but really I think part of the conversations we had here ahead of the show was around you, your experience spanning sort of a good number of sizes of organizations. Absolutely. Um, so I think maybe let's sort of talk a little bit about you know being kind of a security leader or sort of driving security in organizations, and maybe let's let's go from small to big. You know? Yes. <laughs> uh, so my career roughly progressed in that direction as well. I loved being at startups and started out my first few professional years working for organizations that were seven people, thirty people, and thought this is the way to go: be in two rooms with a bunch of really mm-hmm. um, you know smart, difficult people and get to know each other well. Eventually, over time, the infrastructure problems that I needed to get good at and to solve were starting to go to slightly bigger and bigger companies, let's say 100-person companies, 200-person companies. Um, And I realized, okay, if I want to understand how to do scale and performance at this stage, I need to just go there and found great experiences there as well, bonding with the team, um, learning how other people did stuff. Also great to get hands-on experience implementing security at that ground level when the buck stops with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you need to be able to do it in a sustainable way and you you know what the answer is going to be if you go back and ask for more budget. So yeah. you know, I started learning how to design and think about things in a way that I thought was going to be scalable for my teammates and myself and not create more work. My first encounter with what we call some of the DevOps tools with configuration management with, with CF Engine. After I finished reading a bunch of articles on um, bootstrapping and infrastructure and some of Mark Burgess's papers from yeah. um, the late 90s and said, oh, you know, this is how I think it should go. I haven't had a chance to implement it, but let's go ahead and try it at this company. And so at this company, I was it was maybe about 150 people to 200, and we had level one service provider PCI compliance we had to meet. So actually the standards were pretty high for like a company that was basically trying to punch above its weight class. Right? Yeah, to do. And you're still like in this context, you're still in a sysadmin role or I you're am. In a, so you're not officially security. You're just no. you're doing it as one of those things that needed to get that's done. That's right. That's right. There was no security department that was separate at the time. This was maybe ten years ago. And when I think about the bulk of my system administration experience, it was always your first responsibility was going to be reliability and uptime as well as the response to the customer and the product folks. Mm-hmm. But the hidden responsibility was actually security. And the more I was thinking about it, I realized this hidden responsibility is actually as big as or possibly bigger than our other responsibilities because there's a reputational risk here for the company as well as for us individually. And the liabilities for this are maybe more than what yeah. that particular feature is going to make in terms of money. So how do we express this to the to the upper brass? You know, that became a sort of a trajectory that I, I saw going through my career in the beginning, just kind of figuring out, okay, how do I make these changes really efficiently? I'm gonna use these really cool tools that are gonna let us scale and keep things in perpetuity and like be bulletproof. But over time I started to see like actually we have a a really serious thing here where we have to be able to express risk about all these different things we're doing in the technical space to people who haven't yet been quantifying it. So what what were the kind of key tips and tricks that help get that done? Do you remember some some core uh, sure. you know like the the approaches that did work and the ones that you thought would but actually end up bombing? Yeah, I think it's a this is one of those things that you have to use the carrot, the stick and every bit of social <laughs> influence that you need to have and Part of what makes careers in security so interesting. Every every professional skill you have, you will use. You know, in the beginning, we'd use the lever of compliance because in their world, I started to realize compliance was in some way 
our product version of security. When we were able to say, okay, we were PCI compliant or you know, we're meeting SOX obligations or GLB, we were providing a level of assurance to the customers that they could actually use to gain more trust with and therefore productize in their yeah. in their fashion. So I realized, okay, like for so long I've been working in this space where um, we weren't sure how to quantify what we were doing, but it, this helps give a label and a price to it. Yeah, you know? so well, that was, it's, a, it's a clear cut of accomplishment as well. It's not absolutely. you achieve compliance versus you reduce the risk, which is this nebulous uh, absolutely. thing that's out there. Yeah. yeah, that is 100% true. Like security is both science and art, right? Like we have to find these very objective results and metrics and at the same time it becomes a judgment call. Is that good enough? Was that risk brought down just enough? What do I think is going to happen in the future? And eventually over time, you know, I started seeing that, hey, some of these companies um, were selling our reliability and we're building products that are security focused. So there's there's something beyond just the compliance piece of it. And once we could get past compliance, it was also about elevating the conversation to the next level, right? Like once the leaders understood, hey, this is important, this is the language around compliance and security, and by the way, it's still not enough. Because if you look at all these companies that did get breached, they were compliant. Yeah. You know? And we all know on the back end of it that the paperwork is only part of it. Yeah, compliance is a minimum bar, it's not a sufficient yes, bar. Yes, that's right, you haven't gotten there, it's your starting point. Yeah. <laughs> So to an extent, I guess they're sort of on the same continuum. So I, I really like, uh, kind of resonates with me, the notion that the first element is compliance. It's a it's a stick to an extent. You have to be compliant. You don't really have much choice. Yeah. Sometimes you do have the choice. I know we've gone through at Snake, we've gone through the SOC 2 compliance. And yeah. sometimes some companies demanded that. But for many others, once we have it, it's almost this stamp that says, okay, we are secure or sort of we're at a certain caliber of security. That's and that right. actually helped foster the conversation. So that's a compliance version of the second bit that, that you're referring to. But in general, the more you boast, I don't know, humbly, uh, <laughs> yes. but that you can demonstrate uh, your security posture, uh, then uh, then you can communicate to your customers that you are a trustworthy uh, partner to work That's with. That's right. And I think it, also along that continuum of bringing it past the stick into something um, positive, right? Because we're dealing with things that people generally don't like to think about. They don't yeah. necessarily like to think about penalties and regulation or failure, you know? Making it a point of pride. So um, what I found was, you know, eventually when people were starting to solve really hard problems and sometimes under difficult circumstances, man-made or not, you could find that sense of pride in what they had accomplished and the work. You know, and over time, even if they hadn't identified as security people before, like me and like a lot of us, they would say, actually, I really care about this. I am passionate about security. So yeah. finding that passion in the activity of it. And once they start to identify with it from that standpoint, like this is something that's important to me and I'm proud of it, you're able to bring the practice to where you want. You know, because what you really want is people to internalize it at that level of how can I better do security and think about security for our results and for the customer. It's, it's not about the book, it's not about passing the cert, it's not about the grade. It's like, how do we do this better? And so it's getting it moving along that continuum. Yeah, oh, I love that, like making it a source of pride. Because I think oftentimes you talk about security in the context of the shame. Yeah. Uh, and pride is basically the reverse of it. Exactly. So it's, like you don't, it's not, and yeah, I love that, making security is a, it's a source of pride. So I guess that's the evolution of techniques. And this is in the context of this company that is still relatively nimble. You don't need too many procedures, you just need to sort of make it make sense. 
as you're driving because it's yeah. this 200-ish person company. Yeah, that's right. In that context, I could see it start to happen in the individuals. But in my career, I got to see it at greater scale as I moved through into bigger companies. Um, you know, I moved through into companies that were, um, you know, either in the process of going to IPO or past that and at SOX compliance. And you could see, okay, now the problems are starting to get not just about how do I solve this locally within my own division, but how do I get these other departments to also move down this parallel work stream of equally complex, complicated stuff, and we all meet at the same time. And we have all these different divisions that are responsible for the people and the financing, and they also have to be on board with it too. So I spent about three years over at Walmart e-commerce, and um, one of the things that I saw my CISO at the time do very, very smartly was the um, alignment of the interests between the development teams and security teams. They were actually measured on their performance for their security bugs, and security bugs were qualified as quality defects, not just security. It was not a separate thing. So it it Mm -hmm. spoke with their language and their values, and it grafted onto their existing process. And so I think getting back to what is it that a particular group feels pride in or values you know, you could see that continue to resonate. And once a particular group was becoming an example of how to do things, they would want to continue that example. And you could see that evolution. The quality bugs as security bugs makes a lot of sense. You know, sort yeah. of streamlines the the process. How did the prioritization of those bugs come into play? Do you know? Like how great question. Because it's, you know, to an extent, if there's a, a you know a burning customer problem, then that bug gets prioritized more than, you know, if your colleague just, you know, gets annoyed by it. It can. I think this is where you need to have good um, good expertise on both sides, and then the alignment of the interests, right? So, the groups would have their own prioritization standards, and finding that what those standards were in terms of what do you consider a P zero have to get done in within one or two days, or mm-hmm. as soon as possible? What do you consider a P one get done within a week? Whatever that vernacular was, being able to slipstream into that becomes really important to say, I need this group to evaluate. We consider this security bug to be an ASAP bug, so it needs to graft onto how you guys treat ASAP issues, You know whether or not this is new or par for the course. Yeah. In security world, there are a lot of objective definitions that are um, debated but are out there, especially with regards to um, NIST standards and CVEs and vulnerabilities. And as much as possible, I usually encourage my teams to borrow from best-in-class standards that we know. Right. So if we can leverage what we know to be the definitions within NIST, the CVSS, ratings, and then give whatever mitigations that we know to be context and prioritize there. Say, okay, that's where I want this to land ultimately. Take the objective standard, figure out how it maps in our world, and then give that over to the developer teams and infrastructure teams. If we have to have a discussion or negotiation with the leadership there on why that is or isn't considered important, then it does have to click up to that management level. But the thinking behind it is that it's not your priority versus my priority. It's a, hey, we understand this to be a objective priority. And what does it take to fit that within your group's urgency? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If I echo it back, you can say something like, you know, within each of these silos, you know, for the uh, infrastructure world or the ops world, it yeah. might be more like an outage is a P zero. Exactly. You know, like your servers are That's down. Right, you know, on the development side, it might be, you know, a major bug that is blocking a big deal. You know, and that might be your sort of top element, and it might be a CVSS ten type vulnerability yes. from the security side. Sort That's of right. as, You know, a standardized 
score, of, yeah. you know, sort of severity score of the top rank. But at the end of the day, once you've classified it as a P0, let's say in that context, then your methodology of dealing with P0s doesn't need to defer that's right. between you know, whatever these three buckets or whatever other buckets that you have for those. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I think a big part of us being able to leverage known art on the standards is being able to take some of the egos out of it and also help people develop their thinking about these things. Because a lot of times we're working with a lot of really smart, disciplined engineers, and they're going to come up with their own system. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, which is which is great for the thinking process. But again, you know, this it's well trod territory. So take what's out there and then develop on top of that <laughs> as opposed to uh, starting completely new. Yeah. At the end of the day, this is not that dissimilar from evolution of engineering practices yes. or others. You know, when you're a 200-person company or even before that, right, when you're a 20-person company, yes. you know, uh, organization, most of the people are engineers. You know, you start by just having smart people and they know what good looks like. Later on, you need to define what good looks like, but they still kind of work a little bit more methodically. And as you grow... You have to at least get better at the definition and communication of what good looks like, even if you keep the autonomy of right. reaching that goodness level uh, yeah. within every one of these groups. Uh, you still need better definitions. And I guess you sort of started those talking about alignment of organizations and, and tracking it. Is this also the way that, that these metrics basically got reported up? Like security issues basically like reported or sort of the from a development perspective my security bugs were just counted alongside my outages and my quality bugs yeah they were very much uh, reported up and also reported out so uh, they were in terms of how we manage things in the the large enterprise company there were regular SLA measurements in terms of how well they had accomplished meeting the bar for the different criticality levels for the the criticals versus highs and whatnot, and who is adhering to them or overperforming, and which groups were not. To some extent, there is alignment at least on hey, this is going to feed into how you measure your group's performance. And managers were left to have their own discretion in terms of some of the mechanics on that. But there was also a um, sort of fun competition aspect of it in a in a place that allowed it where you know we had a leaderboard of you know hey these are the groups that are ahead these are the groups that are not and it was not a problem in terms of punitiveness it was just yeah just gamification you know, yeah sort of you know, exactly get some competitive juices going to, that's uh, right to get people running for uh, that's right which I think is an important part of it it has to fit with the culture that you have and be able to uh, keep people constructively oriented the notion of of uh, engaging people and maybe back to your previous comment of yeah. of making it a sort of pride, you know, you need you need to somehow, <laughs> you know, be proud of something. So it might be intrinsic. Uh, have you seen good recognition models that work for security? I mean, you've been in all these uh, elements where there. Good ways to to reward security that you've seen work well. Yeah, I believe I've seen pockets of it. We we had a program as part of the sort of the security enthusiasts and um, embeds through the org that might be interested and we would have some regular meetings or help give a more um, we actually would subsidize uh, trainings for certs for um, CSS LPs or CISSPs and that was one incentive there's various ways of you know again back to that uh, the hard and the soft recognition right I think that it is really really important especially once your organization has gotten to the point where security is its own division. Because a lot of times security is a completely business critical and mission critical function. But if the organization is separate at this point, a lot of what has to happen has to happen through influence and goodwill to the rest of the org, the groups that are running the systems and the people. Mm -hmm. 
So every opportunity that you have to have a good interaction as opposed to something that's felt to be like a negative or a penalizing interaction is really important to leverage. And I think the models I've seen at different companies depends on what's valued there, right? So, you know, some of the more startup-y culture companies might be really interested in having public accolades in various forums or swag or things that are, you know, kind of indicators of stuff, right? Companies where things are more formalized recognition, maybe things like performance recognition, bonuses and that kind of thing. And so I think it's important at that point as a security leader or a security professional, when you come in, to really look at what seems to drive behavior at that company and also the makeup of the employees there because it, it is going to change. It depends on many things, like the profile and the character of, of the folks that are there. Yeah, but you do come back to the notion of alignment, you know, the notion yes. of not just alignment within the organization, but alignment of the means through which you incentivize or you drive security practices with yeah. you know, the way that you incentivize other stuff in the organization and, and other activities, which, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you know, I, I love sort of these patterns around almost like this, uh, this evolution of security, right? or evolution of security practices. And it feels like you know, your path took you from the small companies where security needs to permeate, you know, there's no, nobody's job, no, no individual person's job, so it needs to be to an extent everybody's job. Yeah. But a lot of it is done through these informal uh, interactions, through growing, creating maybe a security department, and then going to a place in which the organization is already large and you need to have you know, your sort of tentacles out, right? You need to have some champions, That's some right. advocates that are, to an extent, almost coming back to that first tier which is you need enough people that are that are local that are sort of embedded within a smaller team, you know, back to uh, to that yes. original small team that get it done despite the fact that it's not really their job. You're now permeating oh, many many small teams. It's an excellent point because ultimately, what good looks like at the end um, is not too different in the practice. Everyone has to have internalized it, and I think that with security becoming a deeper and more pervasive challenge nowadays, it really does become everybody's job on some level. The engineering groups get the the messaging and the focus first because so much of what we touch in um, for the product has a security implication, and we're going to get that direct feedback. But if you think about it, really, every group that say brings in a vendor, that's a vector for you. You look at how many companies had issues with third parties or um, contractors or consultants, and so every part of the business has a role to play. And I think that a lot of what you're trying to do in creating a larger company that works, especially for security, is replicating the healthy, intuitive behaviors that happen in those small environments. Like in a startup that's on the right trajectory, the people understand each other, understand the mission, and almost through osmosis start to absorb each other's priorities, right? And then as the companies get bigger and you get more distance in the people as well as just the what's going on and the knowledge levels, things have to work on their own. And so at that point, the structures, the incentives, the goals, the communication channels all have to start reinforcing what was there in the beginning in the intuitive stage. Yeah, I guess the mistake that you might make, which you know, frankly kind of goes counter to agility as a whole, is that you can just continue that original structuring and take it to the extreme. Because you've gone Absolutely. from osmosis to giving it more structure, but when you're larger, the continuation of that is not even more structure and mandated path. Completely. It's actually to say, okay, you've given structure, and I've grown very fond of the word scaffolding. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, but basically, you know, that structure needs to become scaffolding, and you need people climbing on them. You know, like you need 
some element of these sort of local champions and uh, knowledge that permeates it, which you know you see a lot of companies falling to that, that, oh, that mistake of the path. It is very, very common, you know, and you're starting to hear about like the various companies that have, have those kinds of different groups. The good thing for security is that at some stage of career, a lot of engineers want to be involved with the security. So there is an aspect of it where mm-hmm. even just being part of the evangelical or em- embed aspect of it becomes appealing to folks. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's great for us in terms of being able to reach out. The part that we have to make sure is really there is that we're not mistaking soft influence for the hard functional lines and authority that's also needed to be there. And I think that you bring up a really great point about it's not just the the things or the structures that are important, it's the, the behaviors and the, the internalized actions that are really what you're looking for in security. I think that's a big reason why there's so much there's so much around DevSecOps these days. You know, what is it about DevOps that was allowing people to build infrastructure and scale in an agile and in a cost-efficient way? Well, it was because all of these ideas and technical controls were actually embedded and internalized upstream. It's not that they went away. Similarly for security, I think both from that technical piece of it, it does need to be embedded upstream. But then as you're looking at you know, how a security programming is functioning for a company, the things you end up wanting to measure ultimately aren't just the activities of your security team. You know, I always start out and say, okay, great that we got a report of what we did and the number of touches we had, the number of tickets we handled, the number of this and that. Ultimately, how many security incidents were averted? How many were reported? How much did we minimize by shrinking our attack surface? You know, yeah. because ultimately you want to be looking at the risk and the overall impact, not just the activities that we did to get there. And I think in that way, companies that are comfortable with moving quickly and evolving quickly from an org level as well as a technical level have an advantage because over time, a lot of the structures that emerged in the industrial age were designed for a non-networked world. Yeah. Right. And so we have a lot of procedures and artifacts that are built up around this idea of like what are what are we doing to show control and show rigor yeah. in a non-networked world. In a digitally connected and interconnected world. And fast moving. It is very fast moving. Both your attacks are fast moving, your defenses are fast moving. And if I really did the control correctly, how many artifacts do I need along the way after the fact? Yep, I think it's, a, it's, it's oftentimes indeed sort of the, the essence of the eventual outcome of DevSecOps is, uh, is yeah. this agility. But yeah, I'm, I'm entirely with you. I, I had this whole uh, article talking about how DevSecOps is oftentimes confused or sort of, in, well, I don't know if confused because it's a buzzword, so you can interpret it however you want, but yeah. you know, interpret it as really at the end of the day, security for DevOps technologies or security for DevOps methodologies. So it's container security or it's microservices sure. security or container security, but the sort of the true holy grail is really the DevOps shared ownership yes, uh, that exactly. you want to embrace as you want to say, okay, this is about, you know, we all own it together, it's everybody's problem, it's inclusive security, and That's again, right. it comes back to that osmosis. So I think this is kind of great evolution, and I think it's you know it sort of naturally uh, builds in, and it sounds like a super interesting uh, kind of a career and flow here. I have a whole bunch of other questions to ask you, but I think we're uh, we're sort of around the edge of the time. Before I let you go, I like to ask every guest on the show if you had one kind of piece of advice or maybe a pet peeve or something that you would want to share or tell teams that want to you know level up or improve their their uh, their uh, approach to security. What would that be? I would say it's encapsulated well by a joke that an infrastructure friend told me about security. He said, how do you tell the difference between a good security person and a bad security person? 
said, you can't. They both say no. And, I, <laughs> you know, and as a former uh, you know, infrastructure person, I said, oh, you know, that just sucks. You know, I, I got into this to build stuff, not, not yeah. just to tell people no. But it kind of reminds me of the whole point of this is for us to be fueling creativity and product for the customer in a secure way, right? And so being able to keep that bigger picture in mind on all sides, I think, is, is for me that uh, northern star. Yeah, remember that at the end of the day, you're there to drive business, you know, to, right. to make, make it successful. Yeah. Julie, thanks a lot for the great conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And I hope you join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at The Secure Depth. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones, as well as over 100 videos about building developer tooling companies, given by top experts in the field. 